Hello and welcome to Data is Plural, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Singer Vine. On this episode, we have ProPublica reporter Irina Huang, whose analysis of salmonella genetic data I featured in the November 17th, 2021 edition of the Data is Plural newsletter. Without further ado, here we go. Hi, my name is Irina Huang, and I'm a data reporter at ProPublica. I reached out to you because you worked on this really impressive project at ProPublica, looking at the spread of a particularly bad strain of salmonella. Part of your approach was to analyze genetic data, gene sequencing data from the government. And we can get into the specifics of that investigation soon. But first, broadly speaking, what was the goal of using genetic data for this investigation? We really had a very, very simple question that we just wanted the answer to, which was, is this outbreak still ongoing? The, the very like sort of simple kernel that tipped off my fellow reporters, Michael Graybell and Bernice Young, in the first place was this public statement from the CDC saying that we've closed investigation, but there's a warning that, quote, illnesses could continue because the salmonella strain appears to be widespread in the chicken industry. And that is very different from, at the time, a large proportion of the other public statements that have come out about foodborne illness. Um, those will say, you know, this investigation was closed in blah year, and we linked it to XYZ food. So, and, and you know, maybe even as a result, these food brands or these particular products have been recalled, consumers throw these packages, blah, blah, blah. This outbreak caught Michael and Bernice's attention because there was no such definitive action. Um, and so we were left with this very, very simple question of, is this outbreak still ongoing? Because if it is, that seems weird. And if it is weird, we want to figure out why. From a very high level view, how would one, how would you know whether it's ongoing based on genetic data? You know, we did not know the answer to that question initially. And that's ultimately what the reporting, um, months of reporting helped us figure out. So in, in, in the piece, we explain how there's this new technology called next generation sequencing, which gives people a much more granular and detailed look at the genetic code that makes up the bacteria. And you'd think that if two bacteria have identical genetic sequences, then aha, they must have been from the same source. They must be like family. They must be identical, blah, blah, blah. Yes, in some sense, they are genetically identical, but that is different from knowing whether they came from the same source and whether they are able to make people sick in exactly the same way. Something that came up again and again when we were interviewing experts in trying to answer this question was, you know, you can't look at the genetics alone. You also need to look at the epidemiology. Do we have other evidence about where this bacteria came from or how it got there, uh, what food it was on, what people ate and when. So all of that paints a picture about the situation, about how food poisoning happened. That being said, though, the genetics alone are a clue. They're a very important clue. The core of the idea um, to answering our question about whether that outbreak is happening or not is basically understanding exactly how similar these bacteria are. Um, these being the current bacteria that we're still finding floating around in the poultry supply chain, 
um, and the ones that were infecting people in 2018 and causing them to get ill and sometimes die. How is it in the first place that you even have access to genetic sequences of bacteria and poultry plants? The National Institutes of Health has something called the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And they, in turn, have this great project called the Pathogen Detection Project, where they are monitoring um, bacteria from different sources, whether that's people coming to a hospital um, and with foodborne illness, or whether that is chicken processing plants being inspected by the USDA. All of this data are then aggregated and centralized in this pathogen detection database. You can go, in fact, to www.ncbi.nlm.nih.gov slash pathogens, and you can find all this data. What is the journey from, let's say, a drop of salmonella to this repository? Let's actually trace the trajectory of salmonella bacteria for a character in the story. Great. Um, because, you know, your listeners can go back and actually read the story and, and find out what happened to this person. So there's a salmonella bacterium that, you know, might be existing in the gut of chicken. Um, and I should clarify right now that salmonella is often found on chickens. Like, this is not news. It's a bacteria and it's present almost everywhere. And the sort of farming conditions we've created mean that chickens will very frequently have salmonella. But where it becomes possibly problematic is when um, the chicken is then processed for consumption at a big plant and that bacteria comes out of the gut and starts to contaminate surfaces or even the chicken itself that is then going to be consumed. What happened in this case, we suspect, is that there was a contaminated chicken um, that was processed, that was purchased by a restaurant. That restaurant was preparing chicken, but they were also preparing maybe um, raw fresh greens, say cilantro as a garnish on salsa. And what likely happened was that there was some sort of contaminated chicken um, there were some poor hygiene practices where the chicken was being washed and maybe some of that water splashed onto the raw vegetables and those vegetables or those raw foods were then served to a customer who then later came down with really bad food poisoning. This person then went to the hospital. He was having a really, really rough time. And at some point the hospital decided this person is so sick. We need to do a sample to figure out what is making him sick. Uh, this is also another great PSA to say that if you show up at the hospital with foodborne illness symptoms, they do not necessarily do a sample for you. That's not automatic. Hospitals and ERs are strapped. And as with anything, like they have to make decisions about how to treat you best. But in the cases where someone seems to be very, very sick or they're not getting better, I believe that this person in particular had been put on different antibiotics and he just wasn't getting any better over days. Like in those situations, a doctor may very well decide, okay, this looks serious enough. We need to do a sample. Anyway, so what they did was they probably took a sample from this patient um, and then they sent it off to a lab that then cultured the bacteria from that sample uh, once you have the bacteria itself, you do this interesting process where you like sort of kill the bacteria so that you can get just the DNA. Once you have the DNA, you send it through a machine called a next generation sequencer, which then spits out in a digital file, a bunch of A's, T's, G's, and C's. And so that is ultimately the data that ends up in the pathogen detection browser. Great. I love that description. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and so you're, you're staring at all these A's, G's, C's, and T's. What can you do with that, with that giant string of letters? 
So even though everyone, everything has a unique spelling through these A's, G's, and T's, um, we're actually very similar in large chunks. So what you can do is you can pinpoint the areas that are different. Um, the cool thing is that, again, the federal government does this for us. Uh, the Pathogen Detection Project includes an analysis pipeline where every time they get in new data, they actually run their own analysis on it. They look for these specific areas where there are likely to be differences, and then they tell you a summary of where these differences are. Um, what we are looking at are these things called SNP differences. SNP stands, it's actually uh, how you pronounce SNP. It stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms. And those are essentially like individual spelling differences. You know, like maybe you, Jeremy, have an A at this particular location in your DNA, but I have a T. Um, that would be recorded as a SNP difference. Um, once you have SNP differences, you can find something called SNP distances, which is how many SNP differences were there between two different organisms or the DNA of two different organisms. Um, and so what we were looking at were these SNP differences and trying to get a feel for how many differences on average were in the pool of bacteria that were all known to be involved in the outbreak versus all of the bacteria now. Um, and essentially what we ended up finding was that the degree of difference has not changed much over time. What other information does the pathogen detection program provide beyond that letter by letter readout? The project's analysis pipeline, which I mentioned earlier, um, is pretty cool. They do a lot of front end processing that can be useful for scientists and doctors. Um, so yes, they they host, you know, they they have these full sequences. They also have information about these SNP distances I talked about earlier. Um, but they also do other things like they create groups or clusters of bacteria that are similar to each other. Um, they also examine the genetic sequences and look for sections that might spell out particular traits like antimicrobial resistance um, or other properties about the bacteria. Do they tell you where they got that particular organism? <laughs> it's iffy. Um, here's the thing about publicly available data. It's not always super complete. So yes, there's a field for location, I think, where the isolate was found. Um, but it's not, we found that it wasn't always filled in properly or it would be super vague. Um, and so, you know, instead of like a city or a hospital, it would say like a state, um, which wasn't particularly useful. Were there other shortcomings of the data, things that you wish or you think the data should contain that it doesn't? In addition to location, I think something else that, that, we struggled with um, and that really shaped the way we wrote about this piece was temporal information, specifically when the isolate was obtained. Um, because if you go on the pathogen detection browser, which I will do right now, and if you look at an entry, there is a column that says collection date. That collection date isn't always filled in and that can be very frustrating. If someone wants to get started analyzing genetic sequences uh, themselves, what tools would they use? What steps would you recommend taking? Definitely, definitely talk to experts. Um, I, I clarified this in the piece I wrote. I'm not an expert in bacterial sequencing, even though, you know, I know some bioinformatics. Um, 
And I think especially when you're talking about genetics and genetics of an organism that you're not familiar with, it's super important to talk to experts. Um, so first and probably the most important step is to interview researchers, interview former um, scientists who've worked at agencies like the CDC or at the USDA or the FDA. I think it's also really important to, you know, review the literature to see what's been done, um, especially about one particular bacteria. As far as the analysis itself, um, I end up doing everything. I'm a big like Python person and Jupyter notebooks and Pipen. So frankly, I was just using, you know, all of this really basic open source stuff on my laptop, my MacBook Pro, my work issued MacBook Pro. And speaking of your laptop, I saw in the piece, uh, this processing, this data work required about 100 gigabytes of storage. What accounts for all that space? What were you storing? So genomic sequencing data is pretty ungainly. Um, a raw sequence in and of itself for a human would be easily about one gig. Um, again, though, I was looking at bacteria, they're much smaller. Um, and I was also not looking at raw data. I was looking at these SNP difference data. But the thing about differences is that you got to compare one sequence to another um, pair by pair. And so we were looking at, say, a cluster of 8,000 sequences. And, you know, if you've got 8,000 unique sequences and you're comparing them to all the other sequences, you've got 8,000 times 7,999-ish uh, which is a lot of different pairs. And so those quickly added up. Once you got your whole data analysis pipeline working, how long did it take your laptop to process all that information? Oh, yeah. Thankfully, like, even though it feels like a lot, you know, 8,000, right? So we're talking millions now, millions of pairs. Um, it's nothing Python can't handle really, like, fairly well with enough RAM. Um, so we were talking like minutes for okay. a query. And then by the time I had done my entire, like created my entire pipeline, it really would not take more than I would say like tens of minutes to run. Did looking at the data itself change your understanding, your perspective on either salmonella or foodborne pathogens? In general, like, yeah, I, I geeked out a lot about the bacteria itself, devastating as it is. But what I found even more interesting was the historic context, social context, um, and history of foodborne illness regulation in the U.S. Um, in some ways, I've like lived through some of this, and it shaped my childhood in some ways. How so? So when I was like six, I remember my parents were like, "Don't ever eat at Jack in the Box," and I was like, "Why?" And they're like, "People get sick and die," and I'm like, "Okay." Turns out their information was kind of outdated, but the point was they were actually referencing uh, an incident. Uh, with Jack in the Box that led to regulation about beef and changes in the beef industry. And what I learned in this reporting through Michael and Bernice's reporting is that there does not yet exist an analog for the chicken industry. And that was stunning to me. And it's just so interesting to realize that like this thing my parents sort of like through the grapevine warned me about when I was a kid to realize that 20 years later, I am working on something that could very well lead to reform that personally I think is very necessary. Um, it, it's stunning to me that these two meat industries um, have undergone such different trajectories. A big thanks to Irina for this interview. Our conversation, like all others on the podcast, has been edited to fit into 15 minutes. 
Additional thanks to Nikhil Sanan, who composed this season's theme music, and to Brian Banks for helping to shape the entire endeavor. And thank you for listening. To subscribe to the Data Is Plural newsletter, visit data-is-plural.com. Thank you.